The Gospel reading for today is from Matthew chapter 18, beginning verse 21. Is it on the screen or do I just read it? No? All right. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? <coughs> Up to seven times. Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him ten thousand talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant and, You wicked servant, he said, I cancelled all the debt of, your, of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. How's that for a parable? Ha! Huh. Alright, so Jesus is a master storyteller. He loved telling parables as a way of getting across a punchline, like a spiritual lesson. Um, he's not alone in using parables. Uh, they're within Judaism of the first century and uh, on either, either centuries on either side of Jesus. There, there were rabbis who loved to tell stories. And so it's a very particular kind of Jewish thing to tell parables. These particular type of stories you really only find within Judaism, not, in other, not even in other languages. They, they're within, he, said in Hebrew. It's like a, a Hebrew a short story competition. And, and Jesus stands head and shoulders as a genius in uh, being a, a, a parable teller. Um, but while it's something that is very Jewish, the themes are not very Jewish. What do I mean by this? If you read Jesus' parables, they're stories that we can all connect with. We don't have to be Jewish to connect with the story. They kind of have universal human appeal. It's not a story about someone going to shul and on the way lost his kipper and then didn't know what... You know, it's, not, it's not uniquely Jewish. It's about farming. Uh, there was a guy who was sowing seed and some of his seed fell here and others... You know, if you're a farmer or a gardener, you, you get it, right? A parable of a good shepherd. You know, you lose a sheep. Well, if you're a farmer in the Karoo and you lose a sheep, you know you've got to go find that sheep and search until you found. So the, it's a very Jewish story type, but it's not unique in terms of only Jewish people can understand it. I'm sure you got the punchline to this parable. And uh, there may be Jewish people here, but presumably most of you are not Jewish, and yet you get what Jesus is teaching. 
So, you get two different types of teaching within Judaism. One is to do with questions of how to be Torah observant. In other words, how do we follow the law? The Jewish people today, as then, it's, it's how, if we're devout and religious, what must we do in terms of our practices in order to follow the law? That's all about what's called halakhic teaching. This is not that. This is your popular teaching. This is your kind of Netflix of the day. What you would hear and go, oh, I get the message. I, I'm building this up because it's quite important to understand uh, how this would have been told by Jesus, and I hope I, I'll make it come alive as, as we go through it. What the church has done, however, has often gone and looked back at the parables and read it completely through church eyes, going, hmm, this is allegory. This is all to do with something else. And in this parable, it means this. And this is what is to do with the church. And this is what's to do with Jesus being who he says he is. But Jesus telling them is actually time and time again just saying exactly what he means and saying, the kingdom of God is like. And then he tells a story. And he's really trying to communicate to people's hearts the very nature and character of God. Right, got it? That's the preamble. If you've got your Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 18, beginning at verse 21. We have Peter coming to Jesus and asking, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. Right there we have a really good uh, rabbi, uh, disciple dynamic going on. Then as now, if you are learning from a rabbi, you're encouraged to ask questions. And the more questions, the better. You, you learn from questions. And then as now, often a rabbi will meet a question with a question. That must be frustrating if you just want the answer for your, for your test, right? We're in a day and age where learners go, what's in the test? Tell me the answer. That's not what we're talking about here. The questions were encouraged. In fact, there's a, a Jewish saying that said you are closer to God when you're asking questions than when you think you know the answer. So if you're grappling and you have questions, that's actually a good thing. And when you think you know the answer, well, you know what, maybe the answer is not as simple as you think you know it is. And Pierre, Peter comes saying, ah, oh, let me ask a question about forgiveness. Why was he grappling with forgiveness? Well, one thing you can see with so many of Jesus' teachings is it takes place against something that is actually there. A, the geography, the landscape, or a Jewish festival. Uh, this is not an abstract classroom setup where now turn to page 372 and let's learn this from the book and try to get it in your brain so you can get it out for an exam. That, that's not how Jewish teaching then and now kind of worked. It's about heart, mind, and soul. It's about everything being absorbed and coming to be transformed. And so uh, the backdrop of stories can be really important. Jesus is wandering in the region of Caesarea Philippi, and what question does he ask the disciples? Who do people say I am? It's not incidental. In fact, that's why you have it recorded in the Gospels. When Jesus was in the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say I am? What was in the region of Caesarea Philippi? Well, Caesarea Philippi, the, the, the center of pagan worship, 
well, with these massive Greco-Roman claims on who their gods were, and they were, you know, the Roman oppressors, they had dominated the world of their time, so their gods were at the top of the pile, and Jesus is saying, okay, let, let's have a talk about God and about who you think I am. And so it's not random that that question gets asked in the region of Caesarea Philippi. A lot of other Jesus of Jesus' teaching is happening against the backdrop of Pesach or uh, Feast of Tabernacles or one a Jewish festival or feast. And so the question is sparked. We don't know, but what could be behind Peter's question? Was he just parking off on the side of Galilee looking at the view and thought, Ah, oh, Jesus, I've got a question. Maybe. I'm putting it out there. We don't know. But it could be that this was in a time between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Ten days when Jewish people focus on forgiveness. Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement when Jewish people come before God and, and uh, really hope for atonement, that their, their names will be written in the Book of Life. But as a preamble, run up to that, there's ten days where you're meant to really examine yourself and make right with anyone. Could it be that this is the window where Peter is struggling with forgiveness, questions of forgiveness, who do I forgive, how many times do I forgive? And he goes to his rabbi and says, Jesus, how many times must I forgive my brother? Seven times? Nice one, Peter. He, Peter's that keen being, like you get them in every class, front row, asking the questions, having the answer, pick me, pick me, I know the answer, and he offers an answer seven times. Why seven times? Seven is, is perfection, right? God created the earth in six days. On the seventh day, it's all brought to completion and rest. So seven is a symbolic number for perfection and completion. So Peter thinks he's onto something. I'll, uh, you know, he's asked the question, he's given the answer, and he's waiting. Have I got it right? Have I nailed it? Well, Jesus answers verse 22, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times or 70 times seven. It's not like literal, uh, doing, doing the maths, but it could be like to infinity and beyond a kind of statement. Toy Story, if you watch that over and over, if you've got young children, that's like a tagline. Maybe if Jesus had watched Toy Story, he would have come out with to infinity and beyond. But there's also a reference in Genesis 4, verse 24, when Lamech goes and kills someone who has attacked him, and he says to his wives about this attack and his vengeance, he says, if Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Maybe Jesus is saying, meet vengeance with forgiveness, whether it's seven times or 77 times. And then Jesus, verse 23, says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king. If there's a therefore, you have to ask, what is it? Therefore. He's about to drive home the importance of forgiveness. Kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Now, I did not hear you gasp when I just read that parable. 10,000 talents, right? L l let me give you some idea of how big that is. Judea, Idumea, and Samaria together annually paid 600 talents to Rome as a levy. Galilee and Perea together paid 200 talents. 
So Jesus has just put out there like the sum of a, a GDP of a country. Imagine being the audience at the time. You're like, no ways! Not possible! That's horrendous! How did the servant run up such a bill? Really, what is going on? Masterful storyteller has got a hook. You're waiting to hear more. This is ridiculous. What is going to happen? And so then we read, did you ever think Jesus was a comedian? Okay. Verse 25, Jesus says, since he was not able to pay. The audience must have been, ha, 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 like the ways. Of course he wasn't able to pay. 10,000 talents. Oh, you're a funny one, Jesus. I mean, I mean, talk about understatements. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children all be sold to repay the debt. That, unfortunately, was a valid and legitimate mechanism for debt reclamation. You would put a person or their, them and their person in prison until the rest of the extended family could get together and settle the debt. But what do we know if it's 10,000 talents? Unless you can raise a private army, go invade a country and then liberate some uh, resources for yourself, you're not going to settle this. And so the servant really has only re re one recourse. He falls on his knees before the master and says, be patient with me and I will repay back everything. Again, slightly like dark humor there. You will repay everything. You know, if Jesus was Afrikaans, he would say, Yeah, look. I mean, you're right. You can spend as long as you like in that prison and raise a, you're not going to repay back everything. So, really, the servant has only got the master's mercy to fall upon and to beg. And the master, hearing the servant, says in verse 27, took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Oh, as an audience in the first century, wow, this is like a good news Hollywood ending. This, this is one, this is beautiful stuff. I hope it, you got warm, fuzzy feelings at that point. But the story doesn't end there. Because the servant goes out, finds one of his fellow servants who owes him a hundred denarii. hundred denarii. Uh, if you were like a common laborer, you'd be paid one denarii a day. So a hundred, that's three and a bit months of, of wage. It's significant money, right, if, if, if you owed it, but it's not 10,000 talents. And automatically, Jesus will have had people kind of on the edge going, okay, now we know, we know the this is what has to happen. This is the only thing that has to happen. That, I mean, surely. Are you on a cliffhanger now? Except you, you've known the whole story from the end, so you, you know where this is going. He grabs the second servant by his uh, throat, chokes him, pay back what you owe me, he demands. Notice what the fellow servant does. He falls to his knees and begs him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. Where have you heard that? Isn't Jesus genius in telling a story? 
we, we are literally on, on a replay here. We've got a servant on his knees begging for mercy and using the same words. What, what has got to be the answer? Surely the first servant's going to show mercy to the second servant. It, it, it has to head there, but it doesn't. It says in verse 30, but he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. As an audience, we're meant to feel like some of the outrage there. No! This can't be it. That, who does this servant think he is? What kind? Really? And that's exactly what Jesus does with the story. Verse 31, when the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went the, and told their master everything that had happened. N now uh, like our emotions have like, okay, that first servant has got to come, but really, it, it's wrong. Now, now how is this going to be made right? And we read in verse 32, verse 32, Then the master called the servant in, You wicked servant, I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Be patient with me, and I will pay it back. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In his anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured. <laughs> Until he should pay back all he owed. This has gone from bad to worse. Now the first servant is in a worse place than he was before. And this is the punchline. Are you holding your breath? This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Ah. You know, if this was an Anglican lectionary reading, we'd like end it before then. Then we don't have that very uncomfortable statement. Right, th th this is a bit awkward. This is not comfy religion. And really what Jesus is saying is God is quick to forgive, but don't belittle or take God's mercy for granted. God is quick to forgive, but don't belittle or take God's mercy for granted. And this is actually a theme that comes through in many Jewish writings at the time, on the centuries either side of Jesus. There's a Rabbi Gamaliel Berebi from the 3rd century. He says, He who is merciful to others will have mercy shown to him by heaven. He who is not merciful to others will not have mercy shown to him by heaven. Or a Rabbi Abba Shaul from the 2nd century. Oh, be like him in the same way that he's gracious and merciful to forgive. You must be gracious and merciful as well. And Jesus says, Matthew chapter 5, from verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Or Matthew chapter 5, from verse 23, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them and then come and offer your gift. So it seems to actually be quite a theme in Jesus' teaching, not just a once-off random parable, it's something that he returns to again. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 onwards. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven 
our debtors. <sighs> and if you think that is tough and enough reason to kind of figure out our salvation with fear and trembling, it's not limited just to the in crowd of the people that you like and who are like you. It's extended even to our enemies. So it's not just, oh, forgive your brother or sister who's wronged you, but it goes as far as who our enemies are. Rabbi uh, Chama ben Hanina in the 3rd century taught, even if your enemy rises early to kill you and comes to your house hungry and thirsty, you should give him food and drink. It's not what I would do. Why? Because it's written, if your enemy is hungry, give him um, uh, bread to eat, or if your enemy is thirsty, give him water to drink. By doing so, you will heap coals of fire upon his head, and the Lord will make your enemy to be at peace with you. And the ancient rabbis taught in Shabbat 88, those who are insulted but do not insult, hear themselves reviled without answering, act through love and rejoice in suffering, of them the scriptures teach, but they who love him are as the sun when he goes forth in his might. Referencing Judges chapter 5. Now listen to what Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 5. From verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may prove yourselves to be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes to son, his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Who, for who, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors, do they not do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Even the Gentiles, do they not do the same? Therefore you shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Wow. Every which way we turn, it's a kind of, there's consistency in Jesus' teaching. Now, I, I've got a confession for you. I really struggle with this teaching of Jesus. To preach it's one thing, to practice it's another thing. But we have in Jesus someone who not only preaches it, but he practices it. <coughs> when he's been verbally abused, and he's been emotionally abused, when he's been <coughs> physically abused, and he's upon the cross. What does he say from the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. He practices what he's preached. And so the Apostle Paul, thinking about Jesus' teaching, and who, what he's done, and all he stands for, says in Romans chapter 12, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Now, to offer forgiveness to someone is a sacrifice. I don't think any of us would deny that. He then talks about love, and you can read that in your own time, so the sermon doesn't go on forever, but he ends in verse 17. Do not repay anyone for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. 
For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So what? Okay, if this is your first time hearing me preach, it's good news, I'm coming to the end, you can wake up. <coughs> Sometimes as Christians we tend to focus on the atoning work of Jesus. And the work of Jesus on the cross and the personal forgiveness achieved before a holy God. But we downplay or, or don't really look at the implications of that. So Jesus is the perfect sacrifice of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. He's achieved atonement for the entire world so that our names can be inscribed in the Lamb's Book of Life. But Paul says to the church in Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why with fear and trembling? I mean, our salvation is, is for sure and absolute in Jesus Christ. That has been wrought for us by the atoning work of Jesus. So why fear and trembling? Well, because of what the implications of Jesus' teaching, like this parable, have for us if we to live in the way of Jesus. We work out forgiveness with fear and trembling. And let me give you two examples that really bring this home. This passage I shared with two ministers, and, and they have given me comments, I mean permission to share what I'm about to share. One is from a minister whose daughter was raped with a, a date rape drug. drug. Um, and he said this, he said, I'm struggling with this reading because if I'm honest, I still struggle to forgive my daughter's rapist. The effect that it has had on us as a family is profound. And just when we think we've let it go, something comes along to derail it. She was with us a few weeks ago and shared that she has started to recall a few, a few moments. One of these was that he tried to strangle her. That was me done. I lapsed back into murder fantasies. Right? That would be me right there. I'd want to murder the guy who did that to my daughter. This is honest stuff, right? We're not saying Jesus' teaching is easy. We're not making light of his teaching. A second minister who, among other things, experienced a home invasion said this. He said, I find the journey from where I am to the ideal is where the grace of God finds me and calls me to engage with my own weakness and sinfulness. Out of that weakness, I take another step towards the person who God is calling me to be. Even times of regression are moments of grace as I seek to turn and renew my commitment to God's plans and hopes for me. Grace is designed for the weak, the broken, and the sinful, and it never runs out. It's in confronting our desire to exact vengeance that we find God's path to peace. Wow. So if you are struggling right now with the application of this parable or this preach, you are in very good company. There are just two ministers who are saying, wow, it's very hard to forgive. One even saying he wants to, he's not sure he could forgive. 
if you have had questions raised for you, just like to remind you of the, the Jewish saying, you're close to God when asking questions and when you think you know the answer. Don't be scared by the questions. And finally, I want to leave you with two prayers that I will confess I personally wouldn't be able to pray if I was in that situation. But just the very fact that they've been written and that they have been prayed encourages me that our faith can come to a place where it's possible. The first is a prayer written in Ravensbrück concentration camp and left by the body of a dead child. If you are familiar with Corrie ten Boom, this is a camp that she was interred in and she wrote The Hiding Place. The prayer read, reads as follows, O Lord, remember not only the men and women of good will, but also those of ill will. But do not remember all the suffering they've inflicted on us. Remember the fruits we've brought, thanks to the suffering, our comradeship, our loyalty, our humility, our courage, our generosity, the greatness of heart which has grown out of this. And when they come to judgment, let all the fruits which we have borne be their forgiveness. Yo. I can't pray that, but it has been prayed. And the second is a prayer from the Eastern Church, contemplating the very first martyrdom. And it reads, As the first martyr prayed to you for his murderers, O Lord, so we fall before you and pray. Forgive all who hate and maltreat us, and let not one of them perish because of us, but may all be saved by, by your grace, O God, the all-bountiful. So let us pray. Now you know why we're ending in prayer, swapping the order. Heavenly Father, th this is a holy moment. Confronted with you being merciful and gracious and full of grace. We're confronted with the very hard teaching of Jesus to do with forgiveness. The story of the merciful, the unmerciful servant. We come before you with fear and trembling to work out what forgiveness looks like in our own lives. We pray for your love just to enfold anyone here who right this moment is struggling perhaps with the questions of vengeance, questions of unworthiness, of being the perpetrator, of being the victim, of being the survivor. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit may minister into this place, arising from this, going home in the quiet moments, that you would do the follow-up work from this sermon that you would just minister your love and your peace and your peace which is about shalom, the wholeness of God. I pray along with everyone here that we may have the kind of faith that when it comes down to can and would pray the types of prayers that I ended with. That we could pray for mercy and grace for those who would do us ill and have done us ill. May we be a people characterized by forgiveness, such that anyone who witnesses our lives might be drawn to your character 
as a God who is full of grace and mercy. And so as we go out into this week, I, I pray that you would just renew us by your Holy Spirit in the very many different situations we find ourselves to have the wisdom to know how to respond. So we commit ourselves and those we love into your gracious care. In Jesus' name, amen.